If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> listening to the History Extra podcast, brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Matt Elton. Today's podcast guest is the historian Claudio Sant, Professor of History at the University of Georgia. Claudio is the author of Unworthy Republic, The Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory, one of the books shortlisted for this year's Cundle Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. I caught up with Claudio to find out more. Um, your book covers a story about the expulsion of uh, Native American people, which is a story I think I knew the very broad outlines of, but not the specifics and not the human stories. First of all, would you mind just very briefly and broadly setting out the period your book covers and also the kind of scale involved? Yes. Yeah, so the, the book Unworthy Republic um, treats uh, what we call Indian removal, this period in the 1830s when the federal government had an official policy to move every single indigenous person living within the United States west of the Mississippi River. And, and it's important to recall that in the 1830s, the states were limited to the area east of the Mississippi. So the area west was uh, in was largely owned by Mexico. Uh, there were uh, some U.S. territories, however, west of the Mississippi River, and so they had set those aside, and they were calling they were going to call them Indian territory and move 
indigenous Americans there. So we're talking about 80,000 people in the 1830s. The population had had declined significantly since 1500. Um, And obviously there had been many efforts and conflicts, wars that had pushed people west. But this was really the first official national policy to move all Native peoples out of the United States. So in that way, it was unprecedented. And uh, I know this is uh, going back a little bit in time, but what policy did it replace? What was the policy in the 1820s, say? Historians call this earlier policy the policy of civilization, or sometimes we call it Jeffersonian Indian policy. The idea then was to uh, civilize, and I'm using the language of the time, obviously, to civilize Native peoples. By by that, white Americans meant um, make them Christian, um, make sure they dress like white Americans, make sure they speak English, that they can read and write, that they abandon hunting and instead practice plow agriculture in the same way as white Americans. So basically to turn them into proper, as they deemed it, proper U.S. citizens. So that's the policy of civilization, which um, in the 1820s was largely deemed something of a success. And then there is this shift in rhetoric in the late 20s when um, when politicians start to mobilize to be able to pass this uh, this different policy of expulsion. Before we go any further, it's important to stress, and you stress in the book, that we shouldn't we should avoid talking about indigenous people as one homogenous group, um, and that they all have different kind of views and all this kind of thing. What kind of peoples are we talking about in this book? Well, they're, you're right. They're extraordinarily diverse. And so they, they range from Christians to animists. They're, they're Catholics and, and Protestants. There are um, drunkards and teetotalers. There are cotton planters who own slaves by the late 1820s. There are people who, st- who still follow more traditional subsistence practices. Some of them dress like upper-class white Americans. Some of them still dress in deerskins. Um, so it's really this extraordinary diversity. And, and that's evident not just in the material culture or the way that they subsist, but also in their particular relationship with the federal government. So, for example, the, the most famously, the Cherokee Nation had lobbyists in Washington, D.C., but they weren't the only indigenous nation to do that. They, if you were to visit Washington in the 1820s, and walk down the streets um, or visit the taverns, you would find delegations of native diplomats there to negotiate with the president or the secretary of war, as he was then called. Um, so there really is this extraordinary range. And I think that definitely affects their different responses in the 1830s when they are confronted with this dilemma of, of what to do. I mean, and how had they responded to the earlier so-called civilization policy? How, how had that gone down? Uh, some people had indeed embraced it. And whether they did that because they sincerely believed they maybe some of them surely um, were devout Christians. Um, others 
embraced some parts of it and rejected other parts. I think some people surely and probably the majority of people did it strategically. What did they need to do to survive? What did they need to do to to satisfy the meddlesome federal Indian agent who was visiting them on a regular basis? There were, of course, uh, so-called traditionalists who who wanted no part of, of any of this. They tended to be the folks who moved west earlier than others. So again, we do see this this extraordinary range of responses. But I think that the thing that's important to underscore is that by the 1830s, people, indigenous Americans east of the Mississippi River had been living next to white Americans for centuries. Um, And they had, depending on what nation we're talking about, they had intermarried in many instances. Their closest trading partners were often white Americans. They were imbricated in the economy of the United States. So um, they they were not the the foreign and exotic people um, as they were often represented at the time in some of the propaganda that was distributed in U.S. newspapers. So why did the policy change? Well, the the stated reason, the reason uh, that was given by planter politicians and by Andrew Jackson and his allies was that this was actually the best thing for the victims of the policy or the subjects of the policy, that if if they were not moved, they would not survive. And they had these metaphors that they repeated over and over again, that Indians, indigenous Americans were like um, a bank of sand on the ocean shore being worn away by the waves. Or similarly, they said they were like a mound of snow in the sun melting away. And, and if they weren't moved, that they were just going to vanish and disappear. So it was done for their own good. In short, um, was this actually the case? Uh, you know, if you if you take them at, at their word, sure, you, you might believe that. But if you if you listen to the folks who were the who were the victims of the policy, they they pushed back and they were vociferous about this. And they insisted we are not vanishing. They said we we are, in fact, thriving Uh, So who was right about this? Actually, the best evidence, the best demographic evidence available suggests that the populations, indigenous populations, though clearly they had declined, um, but by the 1820s and 1830s, the populations were largely stable, if not actually increasing. So, um, So in short, this is a kind of excuse that proponents of the policy are offering or justification that proponents of the policy are offering to the public. The real reason, I think, is, is that they lusted after their land. And that might seem obvious, but, but what's important to recognize is that um, Native peoples, and especially in the South, owned hundreds of thousands of acres of land. This was some of the most valuable agricultural land in the entire world in the 1820s. And that is because um, it was ideal for growing cotton. And cotton was the single most important crop, export crop worldwide. And planter politicians, um, especially in my home state of Georgia, thought that they were going to rule the world. 
um, step by step. They 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 thought first they were going to dominate the federal government. Then they thought they were going to expand westward. They were going to dominate the entire continent. They thought they were going to expand slavery south into Mexico. Eventually, they thought they were going to take Cuba as, as well. So they had this vision of this worldwide slave empire, uh, and they were going to sit on top of this, this, kind of, this dystopian vision of the world. I mean, the ways in which your book connects slavery with this story of indigenous American people is it's really interesting, I think, because I hadn't made the connection that part of the reason why they wanted the land was to expand slavery. Right. And, and that really becomes obvious when you see the uh, when you when you're reading through the letters that these planters are writing. But when you see who's putting the money down, who is buying this land and and what are they doing with it right after they buy it? So there are records of thousands of slaves and people are celebrating this thousands of slaves. These are slave families that they're being they're being broken up. Uh, people are being sold off from the Chesapeake or Virginia, Maryland region, shipped um, hundreds of miles to the west and then put to work on these newly cleared lands. They're, they're extraordinarily fertile in part just because of the natural quality of the soil, but also because they had not been overexploited by indigenous Americans. So um, this was this was a boon for the cotton economy. It was terrible for enslaved Americans, uh, but it was highly highly profitable for planters. You mentioned Andrew Jackson there, who became president, I think, in eighteen twenty nine. How instrumental? How how key is he in this story? He is he's long seen as the central villain in this story, but there's so much blame to go around, uh, starting with the planters I described. In fact, I think they are the most important characters in this story, the central villains, really. Um, but one of the things I discovered, and this was new to me, and I think new to, the, to how we understood this period, is that there were northern bankers who were deeply involved in this. A lot of the capital... Um, went through Southern planters, but it originated in Wall Street. And in fact, there were bankers in London who were involved in this as well. And I found um, one letter suggesting that there were um, financiers on the continent in Europe as well who were investing capital in this. So it was really kind of international, which I, I suppose shouldn't be so surprising because cotton itself was an internationally traded. And these Wall Street bankers, um, as soon as they saw this opportunity, they, they, they sent down their agents, they formed um, land companies, they sold stocks in the companies, and they funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars millions of dollars, actually even in 1830s dollars, millions of dollars down into Alabama and Mississippi to separate indigenous Americans from their farms. So is it fair to see this as much as a capitalism story as it is a political motivated story? The economics, yes, the economics of it are central to this story. And and I think that the two are so 
intertwined, it's impossible to untangle them. I think they just go hand in hand. There are lobbyists for these Wall Street bankers and planters in Washington. Congressmen themselves are offered and accept shares in these land companies. So they are they are, they have a personal stake, financial stake in the dispossession of indigenous Americans. What kind of opposition was there to this new political initiative? First and foremost, there are, are indigenous Americans themselves. And I mentioned early on, earlier in our conversation, the lobbyists that indigenous Americans sent to Washington, they they knew how to play the game in Washington and, and they knew who their allies were and they knew what kind of language would be receptive and effective in talking to white Americans at the time. Their allies in Congress and their white allies in the North were largely Protestant reformers. And, and so that was the kind of language that they spoke. I, I think some of them sincerely believed it. Some of them just used the language strategically. I'm, I'm sure of that. Um, and so they cultivated a, a very fervent resistance among white Americans. And in fact, this Indian removal turned out to be the single most controversial issue to face the Republic up to that point, up to 1830. And it generated the first mass petition campaign to Congress. And so you can, you can go to the records of, of the, um, in the National Archives today and flip through these petitions. There are hundreds and hundreds of them signed by thousands of Americans. And, um, and the language that they use is quite extraordinary. They, they say that this will be a violation of the very the foundational principles of the American Republic. And, um, and the question before the nation, they said, was, was the United States going to live up to these high ideals? Was it truly going to be a republic or was it going to be like, as they said, some of the decadent um, empires of Europe? So, I mean, we, we know what the answer to that question was at the end of the day. But it was very fiercely contested. It was fiercely cont- contested, and the vote itself was extraordinarily close. In the House of Representatives, the act, this piece of legislation, passed by a mere five votes. That's out of 199 that were cast. And that's in a Congress that was overwhelmingly Jacksonian. So that just shows you how fiercely contested it was and how much pressure there was on northern congressmen to um, n- not to support this legislation. The other thing I should say related to this is that because of the three-fifths clause in the Constitution, that is because slaves were enumerated when they were apportioning representatives in Congress, southern states had this, the, this extra number of votes the slave vote, in essence. But of course, slaves couldn't vote. It's that planters were overrepresented in Congress. And it's this slave vote, this three-fifths clause that actually gave the South enough power in Congress to move this legislation through successfully. We've talked about some of the motivations. Um, How did they go about this forced expulsion of so many people? And um, what was the bureaucracy like in doing so? 
I mentioned there were 80,000 indigenous Americans living east of the Mississippi River. So that sounds, I, I suppose, by 21st century standards, perhaps that doesn't sound like a lot of people. But, but even today, for a humanitarian enterprise, it, it's not moving 80,000 troops here or there. It's moving 80,000 elderly folks, pregnant women, little children, infants. Some of them are sick. They don't want to go to to begin with. You have to feed them. You have to supply them with clothing. You have to find the transportation. And of course, this is all in the 1830s. There were not even maps of the area west of the Mississippi River. Uh, And the few maps that did exist were largely blank. And when they did have rivers on them, the rivers were sometimes in the wrong place. So... So the United States was overwhelmed. The the federal government had fewer than 10,000 employees in the 1830s. Most of those folks, I think seven or 8,000, worked for the post office. So it's a couple thousand people working for the federal government who are faced with the logistics of moving 80,000 families or people west of the Mississippi River, and the federal government is completely overwhelmed. They, they, um, they don't have the means to accomplish this. And I should say, nor do they actually have the willpower or do they care whether they do it well. And that's important to note. So um, the person who is in charge of this is the Commissary General of Subsistence. His name is George Gibson. He, his normal job was to send beef and other rations to U.S. troops stationed at forts around the country. Uh, but now suddenly he's charged with moving all these people. And he was known for being um, meticulous um, and extraordinarily upright and honest, but he, but his primary goal was to save money for the United States. And if you read through his correspondence, he hammers on that theme over and over again. He literally underlines it in his letters to his agents in the field. You know, your primary object is to save money. And he calculates when people send in their invoices for expenses he calculates it to the fraction of a penny. And if he finds an error, he, he writes a, a nasty letter back to his employee and says, you, you undercharge. Sometimes, sometimes they'll say you actually undercharge, you overcharge, but everything had to be, all the I's had to be dotted, the T's had to be crossed, the letters had to be folded in, in just such a precise way. So this extraordinary operation is going on, and I think he and his clerks in his office lose sight of the larger, um, the larger kind of tragedy that is un- unfolding. They are obsessed with pennies. And how were these people moved? And are there stories of this movement that particularly stood out for you? They go in a number of different ways. Some walk hundreds of miles. Some decide they don't want to walk under the super supervision of a federal agent, so they just strike out on their own. And you can see there would be good reasons for doing that. Who wants to walk at the pace that is established by your enemy? Um, 
So some go by steamboats, some of them walk. Uh, steamboats prove to be particularly deadly because uh, purely by an unfortunate coincidence, the first cholera epidemic to strike the United States hits um, in the early 1830s, precisely when Choctaws and other Native peoples are headed west on steamboats. And steamboats prove to be um, the ideal um, um, kind of cesspool. <laughs> There's poor sanitation. People are crowded closely together. The latrines are filthy and overflowing. The food quickly becomes contaminated and cholera becomes rampant. So there are stories um, of of scores and scores of people on these steamboats dying. And when the steamboats would land to pick up wood, fuel, to uh, for the boiler, um, people on shore would, would run for their lives. And then no one wanted to be near these, these um, floating and disease-ridden prisons, in essence. But, but you asked about particular stories. There, there are so many of them, but I, I, there's one account of, um, of 1,500 Choctaws who were stranded on a bluff on the Arkansas River. So this is just west of the Mississippi um, over winter, and it's a particularly brutally cold winter. They don't have shoes. There are no tents to shelter them. There are um, the, the food supplies are insufficient, and they are shivering on this bluff, camped there for some six to eight weeks, waiting for transportation further west. They're waiting for the actually for the ice and the rivers to melt. Um, there's another case of a steamboat that departs in the spring of 1834 from the Cherokee Nation. It has about 500 people on board. And you can read through the, the journal that the federal agent kept of this, this particular steamboat, the Thomas Yateman, it was called. And you can just see entry day by day, so-and-so's son died, so-and-so's daughter died. And then the deaths, um, can, they start to mount and soon two, three, five people are dying a day. There's one, 23, there's one three-day period when uh, 23 people die. There's a Cherokee man who loses his wife and three children over the space of two days. Um, so it's just devastating for these folks. By the time they, they reach Indian territory, one out of every six people aboard this steamboat had died, and 40-something children under the age of 10 had died. Uh, but these stories, um, they, there are dozens and dozens of them. Um, and uh, it's extraordinary just to read through these records. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There still are some uh, Cherokee Nation. The Eastern Band of Cherokees lives in North Carolina. So there still is that Cherokee presence in the South. But there are vast areas of the South where there is virtually no indigenous presence even today. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did the fact this devastation was unfolding give pause to the people who wanted this movement to happen? Did it make them reconsider at all? I did not see that uh, in any... The the folks in Washington, D.C. were able to distance themselves, and they were literally distanced from what was going on. And of course, there were no, there was no internet and there were no television images of what was happening. And so I, they seemed to take refuge in the minutia of the operation. Make, as I said, making sure all of the accounts added up at the bottom. Um, I did find s- some of the field officers who were in charge of, of moving these people who were increasingly disgusted by what they saw and what they were asked to do. And they did push back and, and they wrote letters back to the commissary general saying that it's, 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 it's inhumane, it's disgusting not to, we can't even buy a medicine chest. We're moving 1,500 people. We can't have a medicine chest with us. We can't hire a doctor. It makes no sense. Um, There's a letter I remember from a retired military officer. He was living in Louisiana, just west of the Mississippi. And he saw a party of of cold and hungry Choctaw men, women, and children moving west in the middle of an ice storm. He said they didn't have shoes on their feet. They were starving. He invited them into his pumpkin patch to harvest the pumpkins which were still in the field and were frozen he said they were so hungry they devoured the pumpkins raw Uh, but he wrote a couple letters to the commissary general and he said something is is wrong here something is desperately wrong here and someone is to blame but the commissary general wrote back and said i can assure you we're we're doing everything that needs to be done for these people We've talked a bit about the human cost. What was the financial cost of this operation? It um, there are different ways to add this up, and and not not only different ways of adding it up, but but different ways of converting dollars, eighteen thirties dollars to to twenty first century dollars. But um, I think one um, one fairly conservative estimate is that the whole operation from start to finish, so taking the whole decade of the 1830s, including the costs of, of the Creek War and the, and the Second Seminole War, 
which are related to this uh, operation, the entire cost was about a trillion dollars. But on the opposite side of that ledger, the United States is seizing, as I mentioned, some of the most valuable uh, agricultural land. So it's, it's probably a net benefit Purely looking at the economics, it's a net benefit for the United States. The cost to indigenous Americans, it's not just the cost in lives, but um, it is the cost, the the dispossession. They are losing uh, their multi-generational inheritance. And again, there are different ways to calculate this, but I think a fairly conservative estimate would show that the Choctaw Nation, to take but one example, lost something um, equivalent to the capitalization of one of the largest corporations in the United States at the time. And so this is a nation of about 15 to 20,000 people. You could imagine them as shareholders owning the largest corporation in the United States and being dispossessed of it just about overnight. So this is going to have, as you can imagine, multi-generational consequences when we look at the impoverishment of Native peoples in the 19th century and into the 20th century. um, This is surely one of the central causes of that impoverishment. We should just briefly uh, talk about, you mentioned there, uh, some military operations, because the other side of the story was that there were there were wars and there was violence against these people to, to force them to move, wasn't there? Yes, because the, the, the legislation itself that's passed in May of 1830 makes um, removal, this exchange of lands, entirely voluntary. In principle, it's entirely voluntary. All of the legislation does is give the president the power and authority to negotiate with these people to exchange land. That's all it does. So the negotiations are supposed to be voluntary and and that people don't want to leave. So the United States places a lot of pressure on them and in some nefarious ways is able to get most nations to sign treaties. But not all nations do. And even when some do, there are segments of those nations that refuse, still refuse to leave. So um, probably the best um, example of this is in present day Florida, where the Seminole peoples lived. And there were uh, a number of very controversial treaties that were signed. um, And some 5,000 Seminoles refused to move. And so the U.S. sent troops down into Florida. There were very few, close to no roads in Florida at the time. It was um, largely swampland. And this war dragged on. We sometimes call it the, it's the United States, it's kind of like the, akin to the first Vietnam War because they're fighting in this terrain. The United States is fighting in this terrain 
that is unfamiliar to them, where indigenous peoples have this tremendous advantage. There's an immunological advantage because native peoples had been exposed to malaria from a young age, whereas U.S. troops were being sent in with no previous exposure. Um, but but what's so this war runs from 1835 to 1842. What's striking about it is the colossal loss of lives on both sides, the tremendous cost, financial cost to the United States. It drags on for years and years, and all to remove a few thousand native families scattered over. Um, tens of thousands of square miles of land that, for the most part, the United States didn't even want at that time. It was not seen to be especially valuable. Um, So that raises the question, why did they fight this war? And that's where it, it somewhat starts to look like Vietnam, because the reason given in some of the letters I looked at between generals, uh, was that they didn't want to be humiliated. They thought it would be embarrassing. They had to keep fighting. Um, Even if they were losing American soldiers by the hundreds and thousands, and even if they were burning down native villages and, and slaughtering families for no real apparent rational reason. You discuss in the book the idea of this not being inevitable. Was there a sense among some at the time that this this process that was happening had to happen because it was in some way naturally ordained? That is certainly what what white Americans told themselves. I think it, it I think they felt better about it, and it made them it made them feel better about it to to just repeat to themselves that this was an inevitable this was an inevitable consequence of whites and the superior race of peoples moving to to North America. Um, But of course, there's nothing inevitable about any of this. And and so I think what we need to recognize is not just the, the demographics, which I mentioned earlier, there's no evidence that they were declining native peoples by the 1830s, but that native peoples were extraordinarily creative and had had this multi-generational experience working with U.S. politicians. Uh, The terms on which they had to negotiate and work with them were certainly unfair, but they recognized this and they made the best they could out of it. And so I think if these nations had been able to remain within the United States rather than pushed to the outermost edge of it, um, the kinds of creative solutions that they would have found are, uh, it's impossible to know, but I I think we shouldn't discount the creativity of indigenous politicians to find some sort of working relationship. You say in the book that this, this episode we're describing uh, was a turning point for both indigenous people and for the United States. In what way is that the case? So that's where I think we we got to the geography of the United States. And if we look in the 1820s, there are these very significant indigenous populations with large land bases living right in the middle of the United States with established 
diplomatic relationships based on treaties. And by the end of the 1830s, the vast, vast majority had been of these nations had been moved. There were only a few thousand native people left east of, east of the Mississippi River by the 1840s. So they had been pushed to the outermost advancing edge of the United States, and that remade the nature of their political relationship. And I think when we look at the the infamous Plains Indian Wars that unfolded in the 1860s and 1870s, in many ways, that's the kind of logical consequence of 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 um, expelling these people from within the United States, moving them to the outside, and then keeping them on the outside as the United States continued to expand westward. Uh, You also say in the book that this operation was used as a blueprint for other nations when they were doing similar things. It does become, the United States is, is, has this tremendous, tremendous economy. It's growing rapidly and the United States is expanding geographically in the, in the um, middle and late 19th century. And so other empires around the world look rather enviously to the U.S. and want to um, model themselves after the United States. And so, yes, they, they, they do admire what the United States did with its unwanted populations. And so, uh, you know, I think it would be simplistic and naive to say one caused the other. It's not that the United States policy in the 1830s caused the later infamous deportations of the 20th century. Um, But certainly state administrators in Germany, um, when they were discussing policy in German Southwest Africa, they discussed what the United States had done. The French earlier in the 19th century, in the 1830s, actually, when they were colonizing Algeria for the first time, looked to the United States. Tocqueville, who traveled through the U.S. and witnessed um, actually a a party of Choctaws um, being expelled, later um, discussed Algeria um, in the context of what the United States had done to, to its indigenous population. And then um, most notoriously, Hitler admired U.S. policy, U.S. expansion, uh, what it had done to native populations, and took that as a model for what the Nazis were going to do to populations in Eastern Europe as Germany expanded eastwards. And he said at one point that the Volga River was going to be our Mississippi. We were going to move the unwanted populations east of that river. So again, it would be, I think, simplistic to say one caused the other. But I do think there is something really instructive um, and important to recognize that it's not that the United States is exceptional, it's that, in fact, it pursued policies that were very similar to these other notorious imperial policies that we see later in the 19th and in the 20th centuries. Do you think the US as a nation has ever fully grappled or come to terms with this central episode in its history? I don't think it has. I 
I live in Georgia, and I think Georgia was this, the single most important state in this policy, and that it, it was it, Georgia politicians the one were the ones who were most dedicated and most vociferous about expelling indigenous Americans. And so uh, in my home state, we all know about Indian removal. It's We teach about it in my students, when they arrive in college, know about it vaguely. They know that it was tragic. But we don't know much more than that it was tragic. So um, I think the kind of common perception is that these were a noble people and this was a tragic event and it was unfortunate. But... Um, but that's it. I don't think they. I don't think we fully grasp that how significant it was to the development of the economy in the 19th century. How significant it was in terms of the the expansion of the racial hierarchy, the expansion of slavery across the South. Um, and how important it was to the impoverishment, the continuing impoverishment of indigenous Americans in, within the United States. What has been the long-term legacy of this story for indigenous people in the US? Well, it's, you know, part of the story, and, and this is not um, a part that I tell in, in, in my book, but part of the story is just how extraordinary it is that they were able to rebuild in, in the West. And so today, if you visit Oklahoma, uh, these, these nations, Choctaws, Creeks, and Seminoles, and Chickasaws, I mean, they're very much attached to their current homelands. They've, they've been there now for multiple generations. And so they do have, um, I mean, there's a, the obvious economic, but there's also an emotional attachment to that land. Um, but that said, there still is always this looking eastwards. There's a strong sense I, um, and knowledge that their people came from the South, that their traditional homelands remain in the South. Um, and, um, and so to this day, there are efforts to, to um, make that make their Southern roots um, evident to white Americans and black Americans who live in these states now. Um, and, and also to, um, to reclaim parts of this land. And of course, there still are some, you know, the, the, there's a, a Cherokee nation, the Eastern band of Cherokees lives in North Carolina. So there still is that Cherokee presence in the South, but there are vast areas of the South where there is um, virtually no indigenous presence even today. That was Claude Usand. Unworthy Republic, the dispossession of Native Americans and the road to Indian territory is on sale now, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company. And we'll have more interviews with Kundal Prize shortlisted authors in the coming days.